hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to a Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. The Doctor Who solo commentary podcast. Um, now, I was planning on doing a commentary, a cross-flux with guests. Um, and typical me, impulsive, I've decided to take the bold step of... Uh, doing a commentary on my own across the six episodes. Um, And it's just going to be me very informally giving my thoughts on the episodes as they play out. Um, Spoiler, I absolutely adored the first episode. So you're about to hear me enthuse for an hour. Um, So please prepare yourselves for that. Um... I've read a lot of praise for the Halloween apocalypse and I've read some criticism, um, like some of the most absurd criticism that I've heard is that um, (laughs) it sets up a load of stuff and doesn't pay it all off. Uh, My only response to that is, please, I hope you people never read a book because you're going to be incredibly disappointed with chapter one, I'm telling you. Um, And I think what this episode is trying to do is very similar to what Stephen Moffat was trying to do in The um, Impossible Astronaut. Set up an awful lot of stuff and tell, you know, uh, a rip-roaring story at the same time. I thought this was more successful at that because it's less, you know, it's not about the Doctor's death. Well, it's kind of about the death of the universe, so it's kind of serious. But this was a lot more fun. Um, and say what you will about the Chris Chibnall era. It's enjoyable. It can be quite worthy. I don't think they always go for the fun jugular. And this was super fun. Um, so let's have some fun together. I will count us in then. In five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Oh, this entire opening sequence was so, so much fun. The doctor hanging upside down with Yaz. And how refreshing is it to have just Jodie Whittaker and Mandip Gill? Like, this is a, a peek into what the Jodie Whittaker era could have been had they gone down the route of just having her and one companion. Now, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't have not included Bradley Walsh for a second um, or Tozen Cole. But it was a crowded TARDIS for those first two years. And this just goes to show what terrific chemistry this pair has. I mean, look at this. You've got, what is it? Um, bubbling acid that's shooting up into the air. Crystal structures. Drones coming at them. They're hanging upside down in terrible danger. Like, um, this is how you want a Doctor Who story to... And it's also really nice as well, don't you think, to start a Doctor Who story, like, halfway through the adventure. That doesn't happen too often, I want to say. Very often we'll see the TARDIS materialise and we start the adventure... Or start the uh, adventure inside the TARDIS. And look at this. Jodie Whittaker, absolutely confident now. She, you know, she's she's on her home stretch now towards leaving the show. She's made a success of it. Um, there's tons of exposition here. Did you notice? I'm sure you did. Um, but it's really fun exposition. They're basically telling you, this, this, is, this is how we got to this point. And they do need to do that because we are, as I say, starting in the middle of an adventure. Oh my god, this couldn't be more fun. Look at them, hanging on the grav bar. <laughs> Flying through space. <laughs> Being shot at by robot drones. Oh my god, this joke now. Where she's trying to release the cuffs. And she's going, release, release. Oh no, maybe I was Scottish. Release! I heard as well that... um. It says on the subtitles that she's doing it in... First of all, she's trying it in Scottish in the... (laughs) Sorry, she's super funny. 
Um, she's trying it in McCoy's accent and she's trying it in Capaldi's. Like, this is, you know, a high-octane, just exciting, very, like, think at the beginning of Saranga, you know, it was so sedate. <laughs> it should have been like this. And I don't know if you noticed, but second Akinola, how comfortable is he scoring this show now? Like, he's, he's going for the full-on action-adventure jugular here. Slow motion, heading towards the TARDIS, totally outclassing Heaven Sent. <laughs> oh, there's a mattress. The shippers must be going mad. There's a mattress on the floor of the TARDIS. What is going on there? Oh, man. Have you noticed how they've relit the set as well, the TARDIS set? Now, I've grown very fond of this TARDIS set. And I think, I think it looks very disturbing when you see all the enormous penises coming down to attack Jodie Whittaker. Oh wait, the music. Hang on, let's turn it up, let's listen to it. Flux. I made so many jokes about Flux, you know. Flux in hell. I'm fluxing excited. Gorgiza Flux. Oh sorry, that was disgusting. Jamie Magnus Stone, who uh, directed, I believe, Pete Lambert's favourite, Orphan 55. Okay, so Liverpool 1820, right? We are heading back into the past for a scene which explains why a load of tunnels were built underneath Liverpool, which, thanks to my very good friend, Fraser Gregory, I now know um, actually do genuinely exist underneath Liverpool. So this is factually correct. However, we, <laughs> we have a scene with these two characters and then the only time we see them again is when we catch up with them, uh, when we do the montage of characters right at the end of the story. Um, what I think Chris Chibnall is doing here, or what he's going to do is, we've got an episode where there are a ton of threads set up and an enormous cast of characters. And I think episode, this is my speculation, episodes two, three, four, and five will all be standalones which deal with each of these individual threads, i.e. you've got uh, this this dive into the past here, uh, the angels, the Sontarans, um, the woman who turns up later on and says, oh, I've met you in the past. Um, and what we'll do is explain in those individual episodes how we get to this point, i.e. the payoff for Flux, bizarrely, and this is very Stephen Moffat, very timey-wimey, will be episode one. Because you'll be able to go back and watch episode one at the end of Flux, with all the context that comes afterwards, and it will all make sense. So you'll have payoff in episode six, hopefully. Hopefully, because he's, he's been so ambitious here, I'm hoping he can pay all this off. And then you can go back and watch episode one and say, aha, now that all makes sense. It's an unusual way to tell a Doctor Who story and it has the potential to be very satisfying indeed. Um, this sort of long form arc storytelling, this is Chibnall's wheelhouse, this is Broadchurch, you know. Um, so he absolutely has the capacity to make this work. John Bishop here, who uh, I don't think I've ever noticed before what an attractive man he is. Um, but also, what a likeable character Dan is. He says in a minute, um, what is it? There's, there's no point in being alive if it's not to make people happy. Now, you say what you will about Chris Chibnall dialogue. That's a nice piece of dialogue. And have a good think about it. That's, that's a good way to live your life. Um, Bishop joins um, an elite of incredible comedy actors and, uh, oh, sorry, comedy performers, like Catherine Tate, uh, like Bradley Walsh, who have just delivered the most incredible characters to Doctor Who. Like Don, think of the new series, Donna, um, Graham, Bernard Cribbins' character, Wilf, you know, fantastic comedy actor, um, and now John Bishop, and I have a feeling that we're gonna really fall in love with Dan. Like, I, I already fell in love with him in this. Um, 
I really like these sort of every man characters, um, but like Chief O'Brien in Deep Space Nine, you know. Um, absolutely shame on the reviewer of I, I can't remember if it was the Independent. It was one of the one of the broadsheets newspapers where they mentioned the fact that there was a disabled character and a food bank in the first couple of minutes of Flux. Like, how appalling. You mentioned it disparagingly, as if to say that Chris Chibnall was, you know, doing a tick list of woke elements. Like, to suggest that having a disabled person in Doctor Who is a bad thing is appalling. Absolutely appalling. Like, um, and she has a lovely performance as well. Oh, now a moment here to... Is his name Swarm? This, uh, so the prisoner. Um, absolutely chilling new monster. You know, when I saw the pre-publicity, I thought it was a Castrian from the Hand of Fear. <laughs> um, but that's just me being um, nostalgic and fanish. Right, so these two characters that are coming to visit him in prison, I think that they are Time Lords because I think that they've got a gun which is very similar to Gats in Fugitive of the Jadoon. Gosh, the makeup on him is absolutely chilling. But so's the performance as well. And um, in this sequence in a minute, this very chilling sequence where he disintegrates both of these two characters and kind of takes all of their life energy. Um, he regenerates, doesn't he? Because he is played by two different actors before and after. Um, both actors are really strong as well. Ooh, look at his face. That is really scary. It's interesting because this is called the Halloween Apocalypse. So I figured this was going to be like an all-out, bit like Buffy's Halloween episode, you know, where costumes come to life, or um, the Halloween movie where the costumes uh, come to life. I figured it would be something like that. What he's done instead is he's kind of lent into Halloween by just having some really scary scenes. Um, what's great about this scene is it's all in the performance. Uh, I mean, the makeup is very, very scary, very sort of Hellraiser, but the performance is absolutely bloody chilling. So if this character can regenerate, is is there like an implication here that this is where like the doctor came from, tying into like the timeless child? Is this the doctor's species? Is this where is this a form of regeneration? Who knows? But we love to speculate, don't we, Doctor? Oh my God! Look at that effect! And then when all the spikes and crystals come out of his face, that is scary as fuck. I remember getting to this bit when I was watching it on Sunday. I was so excited. I was like, "This is gonna be good." Oh, and this is the, the, the girl that was going to take over. Oh, did you hear that? Renewed at last. Oh, the way he looks at her. Oh, it's properly scary. You know, I don't get me wrong, I think Chibnall's Who can be properly scary. Um, I thought that um, Villa Diodati and the sequences with the Cyberman picking up the baby were really, really frightening. Um, but I wouldn't say he goes for the, the scare jugular a lot, but there's there's two sequences in this. No, three, sorry. This sequence, um, the one with the angel where she's trying to open the door, and um, the sequence where the woman is encouraged into the house like the with all the light spilling out of the door and the woman going oh i'm going to have fun playing with you which i thought all three of those scenes were genuinely very scary um and we love doctor who when it's scary don't we oh why is the tardis melting um i got strong blake seven vibes from that 
Do you remember when the Liberators started, um, you know, there were like pizzas all over the walls and the Liberators started melting? Oh, Chibnall, you should have resisted the trick-or-treat limes, honestly. So here we go. Dan's working in a food bank and uh, I worked in a food bank for a little while. So uh, this touched me a little bit. You'd be astonished, you know, how many people use food banks, like the numbers of people that use food banks. And it's not the, all the people that you would think. Families use it, you know. I'm not going to go on to a, a political rant, but I will just say that this government has let down a lot of people who are living below subsistence level and relying on handouts to feed their families. It's a heartbreaking situation. But there we go. Uh, people like Dan make a difference. And if Chibnall is saying that in an episode of Doctor Who, good for him. And signposting people to the fact that food banks exist, good for him. Um, I do not subscribe to this whole Doctor Who is too woke thing. And as I was having a conversation with Nathan Botany from Flight for Entirety the other day, and he made a fantastic point that if you think that Ross T Davis isn't going to do this sort of thing, um, in the next iteration of Doctor Who, you got another thing coming because he absolutely will. I hate the word woke anyway. Oh yes, he was the little kids doing the trick or treating. Um, I thought that this is what this was going to be like, you know, this episode. But it really wasn't at all, was it? Instead, it was something much more ambitious, much more epic. What was interesting as well, the first time I watched it, um, I just sort of let it all wash over me. But it was a lot, you know, it was an awful lot to take in because there is a huge cast of characters in this and a lot going on. Um, the second time I watched it, understanding the sort of structure of the episode, I was just able to like relax into the scenes and it's just one terrific scene after another. Now, I have heard it mentioned that this is the most northern episode of Doctor Who. And I have heard it mentioned that that's a bad thing. What absolute bollocks. Like, um, Doctor Who has been an incredibly southern show for a long, long time. How refreshing. We're going regional. This is something that Big Finish does extremely well. Big Finish leans into a lot of other accents. Oh, my God. It's Carvanista. Obviously, Chibnall can't resist giving him a space name. Now, the reaction to Carvanista has been incredible. Um, who doesn't like a space dog? I think we've been pre-programmed with the Wookiees, haven't we, all these years? And I love the fact that this is Doctor Who's Wookiee, which somehow looks even cheaper. Um, like, we know they can do sophisticated animal makeup, because look at the, the cat nuns from New Earth. There's a deliberate kind of, not shoddy, but there's a deliberately kind of cute look to this character. But the fact that they've made him this sort of universe-weary, um, cynical canine, I really love. And he has terrific chemistry with Dan as well. Like, at this point, we think Carvanista's the villain of the piece, don't we? Because he's the one that had the Doctor and Yaz... Um, hanging upside down at the beginning of the episode. Oh, don't you love the way that Dan touches his nose? He, like, pets his nose. I think the funny thing about Carbonista is, you know, he carries this weapon and he's trying to be all intimidated, but he's so fucking cute. <laughs> Never talk of my mother. Ah, <laughs> oh, see, these things of the TARDIS landing and the Doctor and Yaz coming out and... And just having a bit of banter. Again, this is how it could have been. Jesus Christ. Am I starting to sound like John Levine doing a commentary? <laughs> Commenting on every single thing. And here we go, yes. I'm giving an incredible performance in this scene. Look at the nuance as I'm terrified that Captain Yates has betrayed the Doctor. <laughs> also, head to YouTube to see my Frank Sinatra knockoffs. Sorry. But I do think there's massive potential in just the Doctor and Yaz. Um, and, like, Whitaker and Gill just have 
fantastic chemistry at this point. Like they've, div- it's like Matt Smith and Karen Gillan in Series Seven A. Um, they've earned their stripes. They've gone through a lot together. They've worked together for years and years now. What has it been? Four years, five years at this point. Um, and they just bounce off each other beautifully. I love it when the doctor's um, in a house, you know, like in a domestic setting. Because when I was a kid, all I wanted was the doctor to turn up in my house and take me on an adventure. I'm trying to think of other new series episodes where they've done that. Oh, yeah, David Tennant didn't you in Love and Monsters at Ethan's house. Oh, and then the very next story in Fear Her. Um, that's all set in houses, isn't it? Oh my God, the same season, you've got David Tennant in um, The Idiot's Lantern. I'm sure there's way others. Oh, it's the, it's the, what are they called? The Lupari ships. Ah, so the cheat here is that we're supposed to think there's an inflation fleet heading towards the Earth. Um when in fact they are coming to the earth to rescue humanity. That's a lovely cheat. Oh, who didn't get uh, Sound of Drum vibes from the Doctor and Yaz running out of the house? I thought, I figured it was gonna blow up in slow motion. And this gag, this gag about the person on the toilet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, I defy people to not find that funny. And later on, where she gives him the house, and he's like, I can't live in that. <laughs> Super funny. At this point, like, when we skip to the Arctic Circle here, I was like, my God, he's introducing a lot of elements here. And um, to be honest, I was a little wary that it was going to be a bit unwieldy and that he was going to lose track of, of um, all of these different elements. And I'll get to it when we get to the climax. But he just does something brilliant. And it really, it gave me goosebumps because I became aware that he knew, oh, I'm just going to say it, in that last montage where we go from character to character to character, that he was completely aware of where every single character was in the narrative. Like, he had a complete handle on all of these elements Um, So not only was it desperately exciting that the Flux was attacking the TARDIS um, and, you know, the end of the universe was coming for the Doctor, but just how the narrative cohered at the end. You know, I'm a sucker for a coherent narrative. That's why I love Terence Dix. That's why I love Justin Richards' books for the BBC books. Um, I was like, fuck, he has got a handle on... And then I realised... That, that's absolutely what he did with Broadchurch, didn't he? Practically every single Broadchurch episode ended with a montage of characters, of people looking off camera like, my God, am I the murderer? Um, or at least trying to make the the audience at home think, are they the murderer? Um, Broadchurch is Chris Chibnall's biggest success, I think, still. And this is leaning into his biggest success and transferring it to Doctor Who. And I'm so pleased he had a chance to do this. Um, now, we know Series 13 was originally supposed to be a full season uh, with a lot of different writers. And what happened was COVID forced Chibnall to condense the season and to... Um, to write most of it himself. But what he's done is he's lent into his strengths in a way that perhaps he hasn't to date. Now, I'm not saying Chibnall's episodes are all terrible um, today because I think I'm going to name some episodes now that I love. The Woman Who Fell to Earth, Resolution, Spy for Why Freaking Love, Ascension of the Cybermen. Like, Chibnall has already written terrific Doctor Who stories in his time. Um, really exciting, really fun Doctor Who stories. He's also written, you know, The Saranga Conundrum, The Battle of Ranskarav Kolos, The Timeless Children, and they have their strengths, but they are troubling. 
Um, but the Halloween apocalypse and this season is Chibnall returning to uh, structuring a season and a story in a way he really knows how to do it. I've got a feeling that at the end of this season, uh, this is going to be, unless those specials are something truly incredible, and I have a feeling there might be, um, that um, this is, this is going to be what we remember Jodie Whittaker for, Flux. Oh, my cat completely agrees. Hello, Nibbles. You watching Doctor Who? Do you love Jodie Whittaker? Yeah, I know you do. We love Jodie Whittaker in this house, don't we? Don't we? You say no. Come sit down. Oh, I loved all this as well about the... Doesn't... I mean, it's the Weeping Angels, uh, this woman's plot. And um, it's leaning into Stephen Moffat's timey-wimeyness. Timey you know, I say that with some nostalgia now. I used to say it with complete disdain. Um, but obviously they're going to pay this off, how the Doctor met this character. Um, we'll see each other again. God, man, Lip Girl's good, isn't she? Isn't she charismatic? Oh, I got flatline vibes about the doors in the TARDIS continuing to change all the time. Uh, what was especially fun was when they came in through the floor. That was hilarious. I feel like what's happening here, now Chibnall's kind of said he's going, he's going to try and do in this in these eight episodes, is it eight episodes or nine, um, absolutely everything that he wants to do with the series. Because i got a feeling when he goes, he's gone, you know? And so in the Halloween apocalypse, he's, he did that sequence at the beginning. He's got the TARDIS being restructured and melting. Um, he's doing the end of the universe. Like, it is packed this episode but I don't think it's packed in a detrimental way I mean I, I w was able to follow the many threads that were going on um, and this does this is like an episode in its own right as well I think because the whole sequence of the Lupari fleet like saving the earth you, it has a definitive threat to the earth um and it has a solution to that threat as well. So I'm assuming we're not going to see the Earth threatened again after this, in this season. Like, we've kind of dealt with that now. Uh, Jodie Whittaker shoving the, the helmet on her head and saying that she's... Oh, wasn't this great? Um, Yaz calling her out. That We started to get a bit more of this in Series 12. And uh, I've got a feeling that there's going to be some nice, powerful scenes between Yaz and 13 in series 13. I really wish they lean into the romance element. I kind of hope they do. That Doctor Who magazine colour, you know, the, the yellow one um, that they did with the yellow background and the two of them uh, looking very close. I thought to myself, my God, are they actually going to do this? Because if they do, I'll be impressed. Like, they completely lent into the Tenth Doctor and Rose having a romance. There is no reason on this earth why they can't do that with 13 and Yaz. Um, maybe Chibnall's not brave enough. Oh my god, there's an angel on the street. Now, I feel that the angels are, are the literal law of diminishing returns. Uh, I thought they were incredible in Blink. I thought they were effective in Flesh and Stone. I thought they were pretty good in The Angels Take Manhattan. But then Time of the Doctor and kind of all their kind of hellbent, every subsequent appearance after that, they were pretty lame. Um, and um, this sequence I thought was brilliant. The, the thing is, it's simple. Like Blink, it's really simple. Getting your key in the door you have to turn around and look um, but just the direction of this scene um, I think it's one of the best directed angel, do you remember in Time of the Doctor when they're in the snow and it just felt very throwaway and it wasn't directed with much care this is trying to be scary this is scary um, 
and we're losing this woman to the past, and we know she's in the past because we catch up with her at the end of the episode. Um, I want to know what she's all about because I think this actress is really good. <gasps> oh my god, look at that angel right up close to her. Scary. Like, if you're going to bring them back, and it's been a while, really properly make them scary. So I'm hoping the episode um, that they feature in, because they've been seen on a beach, haven't they? Um, I'm hoping that's going to be proper creepy. Okay, so another shout-out to Nathan Bottomley here, who says that um, Vinda, who is super hot, um has to deliver an incredible amount of exposition in this sequence on his space station. Um, I'm not sure. Okay, this, I would give, I would criticise this, and this is why I would bring this down from like a 10 to a 9, because I've, you know, I would say that this is written, directed, scored, acted, strong enough to give this a 10 out of 10. And any episode that gives me goosies at the end, like this did, deserves a 10. However, I would have given... You remember the beginning of Frontier in Space when you had the two guys in the spaceship and they deliver a shit ton of exposition? That's exactly what Vinder's doing here. But he's talking to himself. Now, all you would have needed was a secondary character um, for him to bounce off. And you could have done all this exposition in a dialogue scene rather than a monologue. Um, it don't really matter because the guy playing Vinder is super hot. Um, obviously we haven't seen the best of him yet oh he is pretty isn't he pretty but yeah uh, exposition dumps are Chibnall's biggest failing um, I think he has huge strengths don't get me wrong uh, do you know what I think one of his major strengths are is I think he writes the classic series monsters, the Daleks, the Cybermen. Um, oh my word, there's entire planets being engulfed. I remember watching this and um, like gripping the cushion. Sorry, my cat is desperate to be involved with this commentary. Um, the music, I mean, look at that. You went from a planet exploding to um, a wave crashing against a rock. Like, this is super thoughtfully directed. The transitions between scenes, just how the scenes are executed. Okay, that man standing in the bedroom doorway is absolutely terrifying. Who are these two people, though? I'm sure we're going to find out. don't like it in horror movies when it goes all quiet like this and you're waiting for the scares i've seen a number of films in horror movies actually where there's um like someone just standing there in the doorway can you think of anything more chilling well i'm gonna say to you now you people listening to this commentary when you go to bed tonight open your eyes at some point in the night There'll be someone silhouetted in the doorway watching you. Sorry. I'm sorry. That was mean. <clears throat> so. <clears throat> Swarm's sister was the woman in, in the Arctic Circle for some reason. We don't know why. Oh, okay. So we're about to have some terrifically fun scenes now between Yaz and Dan instantly brilliant and the Doctor and Carvinista instantly brilliant Whitaker's just so comfortable in the role now isn't she like there's I mean I think she came pretty fully formed um, but there were some moments in series 11 where she was feeling her way in um, kind of trying to get a handle on the techno babble the exposition she's she's got it now like she's super quirky um there's a more darkness to her character she's a bit more impatient than she used to be um i get the sense of you know how old the doctor is but in the same breath she's still super sunny 
super fun and enjoying the adventure. I think she's an incredibly rounded doctor. Like, I'm seeing news articles saying how Chris Chibnall failed the first female doctor. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's like the um, hiding behind the sofa. Everyone's kind of lean, like jumping behind this cliche that this era failed. It didn't. Like, the ratings have come in for the Halloween apocalypse. And I think it, it got 4.4 million, right? And people are going, my God, 4.4 million. Like, nobody's watching it. That's terrible. It was the second most watched program of the day. So back in the day in the classic series when it had much bigger numbers where there was less TV to watch, if Doctor Who was the second most watched program of the day, yeah, it would be the biggest cause for celebration. That never, ever happened, I don't think, in the classic series. Fifth, I think, one of the Ark in Space episodes got fifth. Or fifth of the week. Um... Did you see that? This is the Doctor getting one of those hero moments. The Earth is protected by me. But it's kind of taken the piss out of it because um, she's completely wrong. But people that people say that she doesn't get to confront people. People say that she's not the protector of the Earth. I say bollocks. You go and watch series 11. She's confronting Crasco and Tim Shaw. You go and watch 12. She's confronting Gat, the fugitive doctor, the master, Lenny Henry's character. Like she, she is having those doctorish moments against villains all the bloody time. Did she just say ex-police officer? I suppose. Uh, all these northern accents. I mean, is it just me? I just think they're very sexy. Um, regular contributor to this podcast, Fraser Gregory, has an extremely sexy accent. Um, and people listen to his episodes now, you know, just to hear his sexy northern accent. It's like Mark McManus as well. I swear to God, a third of the success of Trap One is just because Mark McManus, the most charming man on the planet, has got an extremely sexy accent. Sorry, guys. I know you're both straight. I don't care. You sound sexy. Yeah, see, Nibbles agrees. All right, will you calm down, please? I'm supposed to be doing this commentary on my own. Hmm? You okay? He's yawning. This is the Halloween apocalypse. You're not allowed to yawn. Jodie Whittaker, yeah, I don't know why, ever since she first started on Doctor, she just makes me smile. She's just like a ball of sunshine, isn't she? Um, absolute ball of sunshine. So the idea that, um, you know, we're in England and I think around the world, we are absolutely in love with dogs. Well, I mean, I've got a cat. But, um, you know, domestic animals, we absolutely adore them. They climb into our hearts. They break our fucking hearts when we lose them. Um, and they make a house a home. So Chibnall leaning into having a dog character that's paired, you know, each one is paired with a human. I mean, who can't get behind that? If he hurts Carvinista, if he bumps him off, it will be unforgivable. The falling structure of the universe. A cataclysm of unknown proportions. My God, the stakes are high. When is the flux going to happen? <gasps> it's already begun. Planets being destroyed. Listen to this music. Literally, it's giving me gooses, this music. It's so effective. Oh, no, my cat's at the door now. There must be another cat outside. We're going to have some regular contributions from him now. Oh my God, look. Parts of the space station are being torn off. Like, come on. This is like one exciting scene after another. Like, anyone who says this Doctor Who is failing... Just on like a scene by scene basis, this is incredibly good. Off he goes. 
So we've got a massive universe, you know, threatening threat here. Um, Chibnall's going high stakes. And that's nice because in series 11, it was a lot of low stakes, wasn't it? Um, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Punjab, Woman Who Fell to Earth, fantastic episodes, but kind of low stakes, you know, based on a few characters. This is him going in the other direction, pumping in as many characters as possible, as many locations as possible, and throwing the end of the universe at us at the same time. I'm not sure um, what Doctor Who you prefer, the sort of the, the intimate end of the scale or the bombastic end of the scale, but there's space for both. Oh, damn. I got a feeling the Doctor, Dan and Yaz are going to be a terrific combination, you know. Oh, God, bless him. See, I've heard um, somebody say on a podcast that they're really confused because he Calvinist is portrayed as a villain and then as a hero. Um, you know... I don't know if you've ever seen Blake Seven, but there are extremely flawed anti-heroes, you know, like Avon. Um, and I think he falls into that category. Oh, here we go. Going through the TARDIS doors and then coming up out of the floor. Bit of a dark place to have a door. See, anyone who's saw this says that Chibnall can't do gags. That's a great gag. That's a great visual gag. And in a minute, you've got another great visual gag with the... the, the tiny house that he gets given um the opening scene had great visual gags in it <laughs> the way the doctor says by the way here's your house oh poor that means he's homeless where's he gonna live oh i know the tardis is she joking are you joking this is funny <laughs> isn't it <laughs> maybe i'm easy to please I don't care. Oh, look. And see, they're going off to save the universe. It's what you want the Doctor and his companions to do. 30 trillion light years away. Oh. Bombastic score for the Sontarans. My God. Okay. Terrific design for the interior of the Sontaran. Terrific new design of the Sontaran. The, the Chibnall's idea that they should be sort of down and dirty fantastic but what i was scared of was that they would be that he would treat them in a really serious way and they, they would be just like militaristic clones you know but this scene it got rid of all my fears because he's like you know really you look really disgusting like they're being written with humour and played with a lot of humour and that's how the Sontarans work that's exactly how Robert Holmes wrote them it gives me huge hope for the second episode of which I am appearing on track one I'm pleased to say um I love the fact that um they laugh their heads off at the thought of mass murder it's like licking their lips salivating they love a bit of murder it's a bit like having David Masco on my podcast he loves a massacre, that David Masco, I'm telling you. It's become a, a running joke now. And I've heard people say, like, well, why, why have the Sontarans in this scene? Uh, one, because it's a great scene. Two, because that's how he's structuring this season. <laughs> the one uh, love affair in the Doctor's life. The TARDIS, of course. I'm, oh, I'm really hoping, like, throughout the season, he doesn't, like... You know, because the TARDIS is melting, that he doesn't, you know, have it really kind of damaged and hurt. Because, essentially, the TARDIS is bleeding. And oh, I don't like that. I mean, I do. I think it's a gripping idea. But I don't like... Um, I don't like the idea of him torturing the TARDIS. Dan is getting his staring out the TARDIS at space moment beautiful like the cgi has just come on in leaps and bounds oh did you hear that oh my god we're in legopolis territory in fact 
we're in Legopolis territory twice over, aren't we? Because um, the idea of the end of the universe and whole worlds being engulfed by entropy. Um, this is, yeah, it's, it's very Legopolis. I don't think that's a bad thing because Logopolis is one of the most high concept uh, stories we've ever had. <gasps> Good God, the cinematography there of um, zooming in on Jodie Whittaker's eye and then that transitioning to the flux. I mean, look, they've done an effect shot here of an entire planet being destroyed by the flux. Like, the attention to detail is incredible. Okay, that line's a bit dodgy. I can feel the universe breaking. Jodie Whittaker, though. Man, oh man, she can handle this stuff. I think I'm going to come away from this era um, with a very strong impression that it started well and just got better and better as it went on. Um... <clears throat> and I think in years to come, and I think it's already happening now, people will come back and reevaluate all this stuff. You know, when this isn't, you know, the future of Doctor Who, and I've, I've, got, I've got that feeling with Flux actually, because I think generally the reaction to it has been quite positive. Um, and why wouldn't it be? Gosh, it's fun. Um, the future of Doctor Who is secured now. Rusty Davis is coming back. And we are going to, you know, we are getting, I think, at least three more seasons. So this, the dependent on the future of Doctor Who isn't resting on flux. So now people can just enjoy it, you know, that kind of cancellation anxiety. Um, thank you very much, Michael Grade. That's kind of embedded into um, fan society. It's kind of, that's not relevant here. So we can just enjoy the story. Okay, so the sequence in a second where she gets, she, you know, she designs the Lupari ships to protect the Earth. One, great visual. Two, can you think of anything more doctorish than her assembling an enormous epic jigsaw puzzle, which is what she does, to save the Earth? Amazing. Like, absolutely, <laughs> thoroughly eccentric and wonderful. Jodie Whittaker gets to save the earth. Come on, TV don't get much better than this. I do love it when it gets all high stakes like this and everyone's like, my God, it's the end of everything. <laughs> I am there for that sort of melodrama. But then, you know, if you know me from this podcast, then you know I do like a bit of melodrama. It has been known for me to be a bit over the top, you know. See, this is the third really creepy sequence. I said, come on in. Can you imagine being forced to walk into a scary location against your will? Oh my God, that shot of the door opening. Like, these are terrific scenes. I just want to know what it's all about. I can't wait. And doesn't she say, yeah, we're going to have so much fun playing with you or something like that. Who are these people? There we go. Um, I'm getting a strong Farscape vibe from the makeup there. Um, Latter-day Farscape with the... Oh man, I got this. The Scarons, was it? Scarisons? No, Scarisons. That's Terran Zygons. The Scarons, yeah. Here we go. The great jigsaw puzzle was being assembled. Oh my god. Chibnall missed a joke. There could have been one piece missing. But fuck me, the f a little bit of flux has gone in, you know? And uh, and we, I was about to say a, a, a country, but I'll say my hometown so people don't think I'm being horrible. There's one piece of the jigsaw missing and we've just lost Eastbourne. A tiny bit of the flux got in. Wow, so let's look at all the ships coming together. 
so what you got is a really fun idea with the dogs um like bonded to a human being to come and save them and that means you know there are billions of ships if there's one lupari per ship which means it makes sense that there's all of those ships that can become a shield it's a neat idea and i think chibnall does neat ideas very effectively oh did you hear that the tardis sounded a bit ropey then oh my word okay we're heading towards the climax now and i want to turn it up because i think the music is incredible here she literally punches the console with that hammer and sends out voltage energy to give the flux a punch in the face and it ain't impressed. <gasps> this music. Sega Nakanola, I love you. Amazing. Oh my god, that was amazing. That gave me goosebumps again. Jesus, oh my god, that's melodramatic in itself, being that person that goes, look, I've got goosebumps. That was terrific. Oh my god, what an exciting ending. And I remember I was buzzing. I messaged everyone I knew going, how incredible was that? I, I only had one muted response. You know who you are. Everyone else freaking loved it. Here we go, Sontarans in episode two. Mary Seacole. Huge Sontaran ships being forged out of fire. Enormous um, Lord of the Rings armies going at each other. My God. Doctor Who is the best thing ever. Um, and Mike, whoever thought the show would command visuals like that. That was astonishing. Like... That was exciting, it was scary, it was um, ambitious in its narrative structure. Uh, a 9 out of 10, absolutely. Um, just a little bit too much expository dialogue, but apart from that. And I freaking already love the Dr. Yaz and Dan. Chibnall, you're getting two thumbs up from me. You've done it again. <laughs>